Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts, and to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Randy Kochuk farms his family's third-generation farm that was established in 1907. Together with his wife, they enjoy the farming lifestyle. Randy had the opportunity to add custom grazing to their operation beginning in the early 2000s, when adjacent lands became available to rent and purchase. Being the only operator on the farm, and with no extra help, he made the decision to take the hay ground and fence it into paddocks to aid in soil health and better grazing land for the cattle. Randy keeps his cattle out on pasture or hayfields all year, utilizing bale grazing to improve soil health. The land can sustain their cow-calf herd, along with custom grazing a couple of other herds separately for the grazing season. They practice a rotational grazing system with all herds and use pipeline water systems throughout the farm. Randy and his wife also have pasture hens that run on the pastures a few days after the cows have grazed, and they market grass-fed beef. Randy's grazing philosophy includes the idea that planting fence posts is something that can help extend the grazing season with the use of polywire acting as a shepherd to narrow paddocks. Randy's found cover crops to be useful for assisting with not needing fertilizer and extending his grazing season. Randy believes that the more you experiment, the more you realize you don't know, and there are many lessons yet to be learned. It's fun to learn and it's okay to fail when you're doing your own farm research, and if you don't risk failure, you are guaranteed failure. Using social media to connect him with other farms has made Randy eager to learn more. Well, welcome to the podcast today, Randy. I'm so glad you're able to take some time on this very chilly day to sit down and record with me. Thank you for the invite. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting about some of your work being a grazing mentor, as well as your operation and a little bit about your farming background. So can we start, I guess, with your history and a little bit about your background in agriculture? Well, it's uh, I grew up on a farm here uh, out in southeastern Manitoba, and I think when I was 12, um, it's something that I really wanted to do, and uh, either we were making hay or with the cattle, and, and then in my early 20s, I decided uh, to stay on the farm, so just started gradually uh, taking over the operation, and we didn't have very many acres, so the other thing is uh, I wanted to keep myself busy, so I started doing some custom work for some uh, other uh, farms as well, and then uh, 
think in the early 2000s, then an opportunity came up as a few quarters of land adjacent to the farm here. That's one thing I didn't want to be uh, driving tractor and working fields. I didn't, uh, and I was basically taking over myself. So I was kind of the only person working. So I decided, well, uh, let's do something here with some grazing. And uh, so instead of buying cattle, I used somebody else's cattle and uh, that I was able to uh, pay the leases off and actually make the land payments and have some extra money on top of that as well. So just try to increase that grazing. We did some research is rotational grazing seemed to be something that was looking good on literature, but I needed to try it myself and put it into action. You see the results and uh, it was very positive. Awesome. Thank you. Can you give us a brief history on the Kachuk farm, which was established in 1907 and just some information on maybe some of the changes and evolutions of the farm in that time? Project Farm actually started in 41, but on my mother's side, it uh, started in 1907, and they were neighbors at that point. It is starting in 41. I guess uh, my grandfather, before that, they were struggling financially with the, the dirty 30s. So I think things went sideways. I don't know too much of a history, but they came out to this area here, and the big thing is, is they could take advantage of the areas here that uh, had swamp grass, which was all open. And uh, so they were able to use that for feed and, uh, you know, for their livestock. And on my other side of the family, you know, being here in 1907 is, uh, I think the reason why they they moved out here is they moved from Austria is uh, they could actually own land out here. So that was, instead of being servants out there, those two farms kind of came together. And uh, then, uh, there's always been livestock on the property. Our environment allows us to grow a lot of grass. And we also have the moisture because we're surrounded by uh, three sides of a swamp. It's uh, one way in, one way out here. So it does work really good for livestock, especially the cow-calf operation, because we can put those cows into those lower areas at certain times of the year. They can benefit from that grass growth and we can come back later in there instead of using stalkers on there. So I found that being a shepherd of the rotational grazing has really been a benefit of keeping cattle longer out on grass through the colder seasons. I'm trying to picture in my head kind of what your landscape looks like a little bit there. So you said it's definitely wetter terrain and like lower spots as in like you have kind of some valley low spots, or is it just like a lower land base? Yeah, I would say, well, we are actually on top of a hill. You can't really see too much topography here. We don't have high hills. In half a mile, there's an elevation of 12 feet that we have. Like the land itself is, we have some real heavy gumball here and uh, also some uh, clay loam as well. And uh, so it's on the outer side of it is where the swamp is. So there's been uh, ditches and dikes just protecting the ag land. So uh, we can also use it for cropland, but it doesn't seem to be feasible, you know, to own, be owning equipment for, uh, you know, uh, for growing grain. Now you got to make a whole different transition and you need more labor. Like I've got a swamp to me uh, from here, three quarters miles south of me, and it goes out for six miles. And also another two miles to the east of me, 
the swamp starts and that goes out for six miles as well. So it's a huge bog that is surrounding us here. But like I said, being on top of a ridge here, the rainfall is very important for us. But it's also uh, that swamp, I think, acts as a bit of a uh, wick for us. When we do have those drier uh, seasons, it still feeds the uh, root system in the grass. Definitely not nearly that wet here. So it's it always is interesting to me when you think about our province, how different some of those landscapes look and how people are using that to their advantage and making it work on their operation to, to get the best that they can out of it. When I was doing the research for this episode, I came across the Manitoba Grass-Fed Beef Association website, and I'm going to link that in the show notes. And on that page, describing your farm, it says the grass farm consists of a cow-calf operation and then goes on from there. Can you tell me about the idea of farming grass and what this means to you? Well, I think when I look at it a little bit further, I look at what uh, what is our soil, what's our land doing here, and uh, it's uh, we can naturally grow grass you don't have to be much of a manager in June and a bit of July. But, uh, you know, to extend that the grazing season, we need to be looking at how can we have a, a longer uh, season. And we never have enough cattle in uh, June and part of July. So then we do have to make some hay so that that hay can be rejuvenated or we get some regrowth for a later season grazing. So, and the other thing that we've also have participated in is we've custom raised uh, cattle for a couple of other herds to, as well. So a couple of things that come into play there is the grass, the cattle are kind of our team that manage that grass for us. But then somebody's got to be a coach into there to have these cattle come into those certain paddocks with that. Because I always look at what's going to happen in 60 days from now. Are we going to have any grass, even if we don't have the moisture, because we don't want to be clipping everything down like a golf course either. So we want to have some sort of shade so that it keeps the ground cooler. And also those roots are deeper in the ground so it can actually take some of that moisture so we can have some regrowth coming in 60 days later. And is this different from how either yourself previously would have managed your land or from the way, I guess, that the generations before you managed their grazing? Well, uh, for example, I know that we had one quarter of the land that I had purchased and we put the cattle out there in May and we kind of forgot about them. We had to pull them off in September because the grass was all done. And I just thought to myself, well, that's just a short growing season. I shouldn't be starting to even think about feeding cattle. Not that I was feeding cattle, but I had to move them to another spot. And what I found is that uh, started just even just simply uh, cut the quarter section into uh, four separate paddocks and uh, seen that we could gain another three weeks of grazing onto that. So I thought, okay, let's tighten that up. So we added more paddocks to that. And I think it was uh, the, we were still on that field a month after the frost had come in. What I'm saying is that we were right until uh, about the third week of October onto that field so that it was uh, you know just a saying of uh, putting cattle out in the uh, pasture the and you know coming into May and then leaving them out there and you don't have a look at them and it's not really managing it and uh, I look at for my herd or other herds that I take care of is I want to make sure that I have weight gain on the obviously we're going to have it on the cat but also I'm looking weight gain on the cows too I want them coming back home either to my farm, 
in better condition than what they went out. And uh, that's, uh, I find very important for me. It's just that, you know, I have a customer that I'm taking care of. I want them to be coming back. And uh, if we can have a little better body condition on those animals going to their farm, if it's end of October, that helps them out for the upcoming season that, that those cattle are in better shape. That's a really big difference then in your grazing season from when you were continuous grazing to now and your rotational grazing on that same piece. Yes, it is. It's uh, And one thing I've learned is, uh, back to doing some research, is the important thing to plant is fence posts. And uh, fence posts is uh, something that, yeah, just keep on, even the technology that's come in with the portable reels using the polywire, we can... We, when we do have a lot of grass at that point, what we can do is just cut those paddocks in half as well. I was just writing that down. I've never heard that before. The best thing to plant is fence posts. I really mm-hmm. like that. Can you share what you're looking for when you're selecting genetics for your cow herd? Well, right now is we're basically a Angus herd. Traditionally, before... The farm started with Hereford, and then we started crossing with the Charlet. So we started going into the more of European breeds, and we were growing cattle for, for the commodity market. What I found is when we started doing some direct-to-consumers uh, is we find out that freezer space is very small, but garages have three doors in them. So you know, it's uh, decided, and also... Are people going to go and uh, buy a side of beef? That's a lot of money. So we started going into some smaller carcasses. But the other thing that I learned too, we can actually, if we start going with smaller animals, smaller frame size, our cows, we can create longevity into them. And if we can keep that cow longer, she could keep uh, producing a, a good calf. Obviously, we'll keep her in the herd. So that's been kind of a kind of two things have been uh, been helpful. Smaller animal and also having smaller carcass. And when you have smaller carcass, now people aren't looking at a, at a big amount of uh, money to dish out for their protein needs. It's a really interesting view to put on it because so many people are chasing that bigger carcass, the bigger frame, the bigger pounds, right? And then, but when you are direct marketing to consumers, we have a few that we do every year and it is a lot of money to put out for people if they're buying half a beef or even a quarter. And like you said, that freezer space always seems to be an issue. How many cows are you currently running and what are your goals and management strategies for them? Right now we have right about a hundred cows that are going to be calving in springtime and the herd is uh, calving out uh, into May and June, and I found is uh, it's a lot less work. I did practice calving out in February. That was a lot of work, and, and then I think I was watching a Prairie Farm report one Sunday, and they were talking about this deer farming, and, uh, and then all of a sudden I got an aha moment, and I'm thinking, why are we actually doing this? It's a lot more expensive, a lot more labor involved and i think one gentleman was saying he says well kind of uh, work with nature and just follow what the wildlife is doing and found out that uh, yeah that actually makes a lot of sense and 
people ask me here is they bring up what about wolves? I said, well, we don't have any wolves here. I think there's a couple of reasons is we're we're calving when all the other wildlife is calving. So labor is uh I could we could even double the herd here as well and wouldn't be that much work to uh, calve out more cows that time of the year. That's what we found too with the change from winter calving to spring calving is you can throw them out on pasture and the majority of them will do it by themselves. And there's just so much less labor and so much less feed, I guess, required during those really cold winter months that you would have to haul in otherwise, where right now you can be grazing or gone corn or whatever, and you're not hauling feed into the yard to feed cows that are calving. Well, and, and you know, and that's right too. It, we have been doing bale grazing, and I didn't know what bale grazing was until I actually seen it. That made a lot of sense. It's... Uh, then it's easily easier to know where your numbers are as well as, okay, well, you put out so many bales of hay, you know exactly what that cost is. You don't have a tractor running. And also is you're culling, you'll have to cull those animals that will not do well in that environment because those animals that don't, well, don't do well, well, obviously I believe they were pampered years before. Now they got a little bit of harsher climate to deal with and you just slowly weed those animals out. It, uh, it does take, uh, you know, probably two or three years to do that. But then you start looking at, you really have less labor already when uh, you have these cattle out there. And with the bale grazing, the practice is the benefits that you get out with all that organic matter that is left on the field and uh, is the cows are your manure spreader for you. When you're bale grazing, are you, say, baling it and dropping it just where it lands in the field, or do you move it and place it, say, in rows, or do you move it right off that field and into a different spot to winter graze? Our bale grazing uh, happens throughout the uh, whole farm and just in sections and sections. So what we'll do is we'll bring bales in and we'll put up a fence up there and we'll figure out what we need for every two days and we'll line up the bales, you know, 20 feet apart. Then we'll, what we'll just do is use a poly wire to move that. And we're, we've got quite a bit of open area. And we got we put the 30-foot windbreaks up there as well. We will get some weather sometimes that they need to hide behind that. And the weather is a very blizzardy. Well, the cows will come to the yard, close to the yard, where the water is. And we'll feed them hay there for a few days. And uh, once when the wind goes down, the cattle will go back out there. And I find that if we can move different areas on the farm, then we're increasing that organic matter on it. And we are putting all of our bale grazing on hay fields. And for example, this coming year, what we'll do is it'll be a pasture so all that organic matter will uh, just kind of decompose and maybe next year we might even get a cut of hay off it and we'll see what, what will happen. It it all depends. The mower is a bit of a uh, tool that we use for uh, when we have too much grass. And then switching to your summer grazing, can you describe your rotational grazing strategy and what your rest period looks like for your grasses? When we're out in the, the bale grazing, the cattle will venture out as soon as they can, just in kind of in the area that they are in. 
like around the, the yard and the pastures and it's uh, once we start seeing a little bit of growth in there then we'll start putting the, the cattle out into the uh, uh, other pastures but we will let them graze everything down until we start getting a little more growth and then we'll start shutting the paddocks down probably by about june 1st or so uh, this way here it's There'll be some small grass out there that the, the cows can get at, and they'll clip that down. And when we come June 1st, then we start isolating everything to paddock, back paddock already. And the more growth we have, what we'll do is we'll take the portable wire, and uh, we might even uh, cut that in half, too. Pasture pipeline that we have, it's uh, it's feeding all of our paddocks now, and that's been a real game-changer, too, because then... Uh, you don't have to have cattle walk as far either to, to their watering and, you know, you can kind of manage it. It's uh, we do have lanes with the uh, one hot wire. It's very easy to move the lanes in two, three years from there as well. Cause you know, you've got a lot of compaction happening and also you'll figure out where those low spots are and those cattle are mucking it up. And then you try to go in there and uh, even walk in there. It's well, maybe you need to move it on a little higher area. And what have you noticed with the combination of the rotational grazing in the warmer months and the bale grazing in the winter months, as far as the impact that it's had on your grass growth and your soil health? The soil health is something that I am excited and I'm learning about. It's uh, We see what's happening above ground, but we don't know what's happening below ground. And we can instantly see on the bale grazing even in the summertime, we can see that immediately the amount of grass growth that we're getting out of that. On the rotational grazing, I find is that that I don't have enough of my own research. I know there's a lot of literature out there. You know, how can we improve our pastures? And you know, is it trampling or is it you know trying to put some introduce some new seeds to it? I find I don't have any luck with trying to put new seeds into it without disturbing the soil somehow and if you do have ruts in that field and and you go over them well you do want to level those things off or do you want to level those things off it's hard to say because you got to look at it at an economic standpoint what are your overall or long-term goals for your soils and grass i would like to keep the grass soil healthy. So I don't know what that all takes. And I am still learning. And you think is, okay, do we, maybe we leave a, a paddock for a whole year and not do anything and then come in next spring and then uh, we get the cattle to trample on that. It's, um, is that the answer? But I would love to learn is, you know, I was even thinking is maybe what we can do is uh, get a backhoe to come in and dig us a two foot trench and just in a spot and seeing exactly what is happening to that root system, almost having like a window there. Of, this is uh, an example of what's happening here. I know our, our soils are going to be different in different spots here on the farm, you know, drier areas and, and also wetter areas. But uh, I find the simplest test right now is we'll go take a, a shovel and uh, We'll see if there's any earthworms in there and uh, we'll see something in there. But I know we have some soil that by the looking of the grass, 
it's not doing well. And so is it too much compactionate? I don't know. Or is it too wet? Yeah, I don't really know what, how to solve that. And, uh, but I know that there's a, a, a team of people out there that, you know, they're also doing the trial and errors. And I guess that's where I go at this. We have to try this out. And, uh, you know, even being a fail is it's okay to fail, but you're still learning. And there's so much now to learn and to read and to watch as far as information goes about soil health and grazing practices. And, and it's, it's easy to kind of get in a rabbit hole and come out and have more questions than you have answers as far as that stuff goes, I feel anyways. Yeah, it is. Try a small example of another thing that either you're going to fail or you will succeed. It's least you try. And even if it's, um, if you don't try, you have failed already. That's true. You're involved with the Manitoba Grass-Fed Beef Association, as I mentioned above. What does this membership mean to you and how is it helping you to move your farm forward? I would say it's giving information to consumers. And I know I've gained some some consumers that are really health conscious about not really where their food comes from, but how it's raised. It's uh, I know I've got a couple of consumers that are celiac and they have those those are testimonies in themselves. I would have said earlier on that I found that hard to believe, but you know the thing in between my ears made me realize, well, this is people's health that they're actually saying, no, we we are very happy with the grass fed beef you're producing because we're feeling healthier, we're not getting sick, and I'm finding okay, so we're onto something here and so, and I found that everything is growing, like we're becoming more aware, we're becoming more health conscious of what we're eating. And it's a bit of a niche for our farm, but people are willing to pay the price for the, uh, for the grass-fed beef. And so the beef that you're producing is not grain-finished in any way, it's completely grass-fed right until it's butchered? Uh, yeah, everything. Uh, the we do not feed any grain to our animals. I don't think we've had grain fed to an animal for eight years now. Okay. So we're we are a hundred percent. The only thing that gets the grain is our chickens. And what age are you butchering those animals at? Uh, everything ranges from uh, we're going from eighteen months to thirty months. Okay. And it wouldn't be a whole lot longer than to have them finished on grass. It's just a little bit slower process. Yeah, it is. It's uh, like if you have been finishing animals on grain over the past, you know that there's a shorter window. And to make that transition, it does take a couple of years to get used to that. It's uh, But, uh, you know, now I'm in a position already that uh, we're always moving something every month. Mm-hmm. So now you know you have a cash flow uh, coming in as well with that. Prior before you'd be selling. I mean, we're still we still we still sell animals through the auction mart, but we do keep uh, selected quite a few for our grass finished uh, market as well because we know that later on we're going to need it, and that always always seemed to be it was a good insurance to have. Is you're not following on the the commodity market. Mm-hmm. But you're dealing with the consumers and, you know, you've set your price. This is what your price is. And 
people are willing to pay uh, at where your price is at. So how many animals would you finish and sell then in a year? We're doing 24. Wow, good for you guys. Thank you. Tell me a bit about manitobabeef.com and I'll put that link into the show notes. How did it come to be and what do you offer through this website today? Well, that uh, came into be in uh, May 23rd, 2003. That is a date that when the U.S. had shut the border due to a case of BSC found here. And that year I had started, I was finishing animals. They were just grain-fed animals that I was finishing and uh, they needed to go. This was in May. They were ready in July. So I was trying to, to market and I actually had an opportunity marketing these animals. I sold them uh, right directly to consumers. So then the next year, decided to, uh, well, you know, people want our beef. So I decided to go and uh, we developed the website and uh, we started selling beef. But then we started realizing that everybody's freezer started getting full because uh, I, I think I had, I was fortunate to be the first one in line. And, but then 04 came in, we started having uh, some growing pains and started, we started learning more of uh, celiac. And also uh, some people couldn't uh, eat meat that uh, was fed with grain. So we just started making that little bit of that uh, transition of uh, selling uh, 100% grass-fed uh, beef. Still marketing uh, some beef through that. It's I'm kind of a silent partner in that now. I know that partner, he's been uh, going and uh, selling at the farmer's markets in the city, and he's also doing the, the uh, online orders as well. Switching gears a little bit, you were named Manitoba Grazer of the Year in 2005 and 2011. Can you share a bit about what this award is and what it means to you to have received it? Uh, well, it was really nice to have this recognition of you're doing something positive, you're doing something great. And also, it made me think that, you know, how can I help others? I know what I know, but I don't know it all. And our my environment could be a lot different than even in somebody that's four miles down the road, you know, is where's their infrastructure, where's their well, it's... Uh, so yeah, it was really neat to uh, be recognized that uh, a couple of times and and also gives you the opportunity of rubbing shoulders with other beef producers too, because even sometimes you would meet with them and then you would see what they would do and then you would get that aha moment going, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to try this. And uh, so it's, uh, no, everybody's got uh, something unique and, uh, you know, we can all uh, put all of our heads together and, uh, you know, it can help our farm generate some extra or you know make it easier on our farm and on the topic of say sharing that knowledge and helping others like you mentioned what has your experience been as a grazing mentor with the mentorship program so far well it's uh, i haven't really had too much opportunity uh i just got started here again in two in june i think it was but even though what i could take is uh my knowledge here is, uh, you know, if somebody's doing some corn grazing, you know, I'll ask, okay, what, what is your cost to that? It's uh, the important thing is, what are your numbers? What's the numbers of taking in, well, this is what my corn costs. Okay, well, 
did you have the equipment for it? Do you know, did you prepare the field? So is it, or would it have been easier to go another, another feed source that might've been available that you could have used? It's, uh, I think a lot of people get hung up on this machinery that uh, you can feed your cattle, you know, and uh, that's what the normality is. It's, uh, but what does that cost? You know, it's because there isn't really big margins uh, in this in this beef business, and I know the markets are very good right now. How long that's going to last, I don't know. Tell me about your YouTube channel and what viewers can find there. The YouTube channel is something that I started three years ago, and two things I wanted to do there will make people aware of what we do in agriculture. And the other thing, too, is uh, I think YouTube will be around for a while. Hopefully it is, is that uh, I used to uh, log in everything I used to do on the farm and I uh, lost that information. And uh, so I thought, you know, somebody uh, can easily uh, go out and uh, check my stuff out on, uh, you know, there's something that is archived now. And uh, also uh, just connecting with others, uh, you know, from uh, different countries and, you know, seeing what they're doing is, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from just accidentally, you know, watching the YouTubes, but accidentally learning, hey, you know what, I can do that here as well. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun and, you know, just even make the videos. It's, uh, you know, I've got everything in there from, you know, uh, even fixing, um, or equipment to, uh, you know, uh, moving the cattle. And uh, I am trying to do is do some financial analysts with it as well, just to see, okay, what is our cost? You know, I just took like a very brief look through it the other day after you sent me the link. But you have a, like you said, a very wide range of, of videos on there that I think any of listeners that take a peek at it will find something interesting that they can kind of watch and maybe learn from or maybe give them some new ideas too. So. I appreciate that you sent me that link and I will make sure that it's in the show notes for any of our listeners who are looking for it. Thank you. Is there anything else about your operation or about the things that you're trying that you'd like to share before we wrap up today? Well, we uh, introduced chickens to the operation four years ago and uh, we did the meat chickens and, uh, but there wasn't very much of a margin in that. And uh, when we had COVID, uh, it was, I, didn't think people were going to be paying such a high price for the chickens. And uh, so I didn't go with that, but we still have the hens and you know, we move all the eggs. We have no problem moving any of our eggs here. It's we, uh, we got a good relationship in the city with someone there that uh, takes everything from us and uh, they just distribute it out. And uh, so we, we make it worth their time as well. And so uh, thought about hogs, but no, it's just, uh, that's a little more work. And I don't know how well I could market that product. And uh, it just, yeah, it just didn't really seem that I was, uh, but yeah, we're going to just kind of continue with the grazing. The grazing works very well here. And, uh, you know, also being the grass fed, uh, you know, we're able to market. uh, So our customers are uh, helping with us that as well and kind of giving us a boost to us mentally that, hey, they want this. And, you know, so we're going to do our best to uh, make that product for them. If listeners want more information from you or they have questions, what is the best way for them to contact you or where can they find you on social media? 
social media i'm on instagram uh, twitter tiktok and youtube as well and you're also welcome to share my email address and if they have any questions feel free at randy.tkachik at gmail.com do you have the same handle for all of your instagram twitter yes life on a manitoba farm I will add all of those into the show notes so it's easy for people to find you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast and sharing a little bit about your story. I know there's probably so much more that you could share, but I appreciate this little bit of a dive into your operation and the way you do things and why you do them. And I really appreciate that you have the the YouTube channel so you can share your story and some of the things that you're doing as well as your social media accounts. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the research projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project partner or contributor, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, and Ducks Unlimited Canada.